All right. So uh, uh, Bob just told me a, a really interesting story, and so I, <laughs> I'm so sorry I didn't have it on on the air. Uh, Bob, let's tell more interesting stories and answer some patron emails. What do you say? I say let's do it. Uh, patron Leia from France says. At which step of the romantic relationship is it the most appropriate for someone with borderline to tell their partner that they have borderline? Well, I, um, I, I don't see the purpose of telling somebody who doesn't understand diagnosis your diagnosis. I think probably describing what happens for you in your relationships more like, here's what goes on for me, the kinds of feelings that come up for me. Um, how they can be disproportionate or, you know, you, it might be weird or unusual for you to, um, I might not, I might not be the same as other people you've met, but I don't really like the way I'm saying this, but to describe it phenomenologically as opposed to diagnostically is probably more valuable and more meaningful and also, um, less scary because you start throwing around diagnosis and that one, if anybody has any knowledge of diagnosing, they're going to be, um, Put off by it because it has such a crappy um, reputation attached to it uh, undeservedly but nonetheless and particularly the mental health community which you've heard me say this before we're the worst we we vilify people with bpd um and we shouldn't do that but we do um so so i don't see any purpose uh with telling your partner that diagnosis but i do think that there's opportunity here for intimacy in candor with what it actually means or what it actually happens to you. Yeah. I think the broader question is when do you tell your partner about your issues? You know, at what point in the dating process? Cause everyone has issues, yeah. whether it's borderline or a thousand other things. And mm -hmm. at what point do you tell your partner? And it's an interesting question mm -hmm. because I think for us in our circle and our thinking, it would you would say one, yeah, you should tell your partner eventually, and two, you deserve to have your partner understand your issues so that they can help you with them, and uh, and everyone has issues, so at some point that needs to be discussed. But when, right? Because you wouldn't say on the first date. Yeah, you know, this is a really. I didn't know what my issues were before before I started. Well, so with let me ask, so let's use you, Bob, for a second. <laughs> All right, you now know your issues. Yes, I do. Uh, we would characterize it as, or I would characterize it as, because of abuse in yeah. your past, yeah. you are both desperate for closeness and terrified of closeness, yes. terrified of the vulnerability, and maybe easily triggered by uh, signals of rejection and disapproval and when if you were to yeah. go back in time and, and before you met Colleen you're dating on what stage of the relationship do you feel like you would need to and or want to tell your partner great about? question fifth date why fifth date because it's not that long into the thing where if that's going to be a problem I'm going to get my heart broken and it's also not like if I'm on a fifth date with somebody, it's because I'm interested in them, not because. Right. So yeah, that's, it's that's arbitrary. No, but that, that's interesting because you think, well, third date. Well, you, you can go on three dates with someone that you're really still in the shopping phase. Oh, right? sure. But five dates, it's definitely like a threshold. You For, know? Is that is that our generation? Is that or is that how everybody is? Or I would imagine that that's similar. Yeah, okay. Fifth yeah. Date. Yeah. 
because yeah, by fi- by the fifth time, you're yeah. you're saying, yes. I dig you, you dig me, we yeah. like each other, we're hanging out at Applebee's. Right. This is the time when I tell you. <laughs> yeah. Do we have Applebee's in Seattle? No, you have to go out of town. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, the one time I've been to an Applebee's was in Florida. I remember really liking it because they had like a, a salad bar. They don't have salad bars anymore. Well, no. I like a good salad bar. Well, uh, you know, Whole Foods has a really great salad bar. I know. I go there all the time. Yeah. Uh, I also go to Central Market up there. Oh, sure. yeah. Central. They have Colleen good... loves the salad bar at Central Market. Me too. I'm not that impressed. I mean, it serves its purpose. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, but... Yeah, because first date, you know, no. that could mean anything. Second date, third date, totally, it could end. Sure. You're really rolling the dice. You go on a third date, it, it, 50-50, you go on a fourth. You yeah. go on a fifth date, you're yeah. basically saying, I think, I'm at least going to give this 10 to 20 dates. Yeah. You know what I mean? This like isn't it, casual, like... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's still casual, yeah. maybe, but... If, I, if, I'm, if I'm saying yes to, the to a fifth, fifth date... date. I'm I'm inviting a very good possibility of a tenth date. You know what I mean? Yes, I completely agree. But what do you say? What do I say? What would you say? I'd say what you just said. I'd say because of um, childhood trauma. But so so, you're sitting over Applebee's. You have your salad bar. Oh, right on. And you're you know having a drink and you're having a couple laughs. Right. And you're getting into that part of the right. conversation where it might be yeah. appropriate to get down to the nitty-gritty what do you, what do you say i say do i have spinach in my teeth <laughs> i i say i have a you should probably know something about me that's likely to show up and that is that i have a history of trauma from my kidhood um includes physical and emotional abuse and um i that's likely to come up in our in as you get to know me okay, i'll role play her are you okay. abusive Am I abusive? Because that's the first thing that would come to someone's mind. I have trouble with volatility. Do you hit people? No. Do you verbally abuse people? I have. Are you going to do that to me? I don't know. Why are you telling me this? Because you ought to know what you're getting into if you decide you want a sixth date or a seventh date. Yeah. And it just seems reasonable. Plus, the other thing is, is look, I'm... I don't I don't want to be plagued by this stuff. And um I think one of the one of the mistakes I've made in the well it's not so much a mistake is my ignorance of it and my inability to talk about it in previous relationships has um stunted me. Yeah. Uh, robbed me and my partner at the time of a chance to actually do something useful with it or to make some lemonade out of the lemon if that's the way to put it. I don't know. But but Look, I get it. You know, you might not want to risk that, and that's fine. And and you also deserve to know, and I deserve actually for you to know, um, you know, a little bit about who who I am. Yeah. I mean, and I don't think I'm all that weird for for, for person that's been through abuse. Yeah. I'd say probably the biggest problem with me isn't that I can get really really angry. The problem with me is that I actually live. Um, often hidden and ashamed. That'd be a, a real litmus test. Totally. I would imagine a good percentage of people in a, I would think, wrong-headed way would just say, well, that's it, whether this guy. 
this is scary. Yeah. And yet the fact that you're saying it means so much more. It's such a green flag, you know, it's such a non red flag. It's such an indication of maturity and of ownership of feelings and of self-awareness. But most people hide so much of that stuff and go into denial about it. And then, especially in the beginning of a relationship, there's this fantasy that this person's perfect. They don't have any problems because it's not likely that your issue along these lines would crop up in the first 20 dates. You know what I mean? No. So you could get away with hiding it. And the, and even if it did crop up, the person dating you could, would probably go into a fantasy world of like, well, it was, that's probably just an anomaly. He's perfect. You know, that's how we feel in the beginning yeah. of a relationship. Right. So you're really introducing like a, a year two issue into the fifth date, <laughs> you know, I'm 54 years old. If I were single and I were dating, I would be totally cool with five dates. And that person said, I don't really want to play anymore. Yeah. I'd be okay with me. I wouldn't be all that bummed or disappointed. And I just figure, okay, if I'm interested in having this kind of, um, if I'm interested in having a relationship, then this is just the cost. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it would be a wonderful way of weeding out the immature, honestly, you know, interesting. The unself-aware. Oh, that's interesting. Now that's interesting. What can we learn from the response of the partner? About- well, so if someone said that to you, fifth date, something similar, or, or they tell you they have borderline. They literally say, I just want to tell you, I, I know, you know, you're a therapist. I have borderline and da da da. And I know you don't think bad things about it, but know that I get real hurt and real upset and very triggered by any sign of abandonment. I'm going to, you know, I get to this real place of deep shame and I, I get real angry and I might I might take it out on you. I just want to let you know, what, what would you do? Well, what are we going to do like when that happens? What kind of t- tips do you have for me so that we can... But would sh- you run? Not, not off the bat. I would be impacted by it, right? I mean, I, I'm just imagining what it'd be like. I'm just imagining and I can feel like a bit of tension come up in me because That's, I do know something about that and... Yeah sort of just seems like wisdom to know that you could get, I could get hurt by, um, would you be glad you were told? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And would you be impressed that they said something? Yes, I would. And, and I'd be more like a roll my sleeves up kind of feel as opposed to a run in horror. Cause if I'm on a fifth date with somebody, it's, it's not, it's cause they, there's something about them that I find interesting or appealing or, um, compelling and I want to learn about them. So I tell you, for me, I would be so encouraged. And I'm not just saying that. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought about it till we were just thinking about it. I would be like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yes to date six through ten with this person. Yeah. Because to be able to say that, you know, 99% right. of people are so unaware, They're unaware or so ashamed or so, I don't know what completely that they would never they would ne- like, say anything. They're like telling this. you something really important. It's saying a lot of things. It's, yeah. it's saying what they're saying, but it's also saying right. I value emotional awareness and processing and taking responsibility. Right. And I consider, you know, even though from, from my standpoint, I might be like, well, that's a little scary because it sounds like, this person can become unreasonable, yeah. but they're telling me that they can become unreasonable. Right. You know what I mean? They're telling me that they get triggered. Right. And 
you know, I can deal with someone getting triggered by me as long as later on they're like, I'm sorry I got triggered by you. Sure. <laughs> I'm sorry that I overreacted. You know, I, I can deal with that. Right. But the opposite of like someone who is unaware right. and maybe even less, you know, traumatized, but that doesn't really think about emotions, doesn't really think about triggering, doesn't really think about right. um, how their relationship is, you know, that kind of thing. Yep. I, I would consider that to be a worse scenario. Agreed. I'd rather be with someone that had, you know, all of that awareness and yet some overreactivity yeah. than just sort of like typical yeah. avoidant people. It, it feels know? good, doesn't it? Yeah. Like the idea that somebody could do, because you're going to run into it. And when you do, you guys already have common language to talk about it. Right. That isn't pejorative. Right. That isn't pokey and like judgy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. Hey, I, whoever this is, could, I hope that they could Le- just. Leia from France. Leia, uh, Leia, I hope you'll tell us what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would also say, you know, if it's not the fifth date, it would be. You know, when I was thinking about this earlier, I was thinking when things get quote unquote serious, maybe. Yeah. Whatever that is. Like we say we're not dating anybody else. Is that serious? Yeah. Where it kind of feels that way. Yeah. Um, that could be within the first week or it could be like six months in or something. Yeah. It kind of depends on the relationship. You start and, adding sex in and. Well, baby, but just like. Oh, yeah, that, maybe that's me. <laughs> yeah. Some people have sex in it right away, but it, it. Right. I think people know when things start to feel serious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When the love word starts to be considered. Oh, yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. When you start inviting them to family get togethers. Oh, yeah. You know? Right. There's a certain threshold that I think yeah. dating relationships and everyone kind of feels it. You right. know, like, oh, we're going. Okay, we're going there. Um, anyway. Anonymous patron said, I am looking for... Res- All these emails are about borderline, by the way. Anonymous okay. patron. I'm looking for resources because I believe my mom has borderline personality disorder. Are there places to go on the web to learn more or online communities? I am 48. My mom is 75. We have a very negative and volatile relationship. I looked at the books Walking on Eggshells and When Your Mother Has Borderline Personality Disorder by Daniel Lobel and had a shock of recognition with my mom. I had hoped that understanding the situation would make our relationship better, but our relationship is still full of rage and, and blame. I'm raising my own daughter now and working with my therapist on my own borderline traits. I'm a blamer myself, and boy, am I afraid of abandonment. And trying hard to heal, to be in dialogue with my mom, and to set right boundaries as I parent my own child. Mm. I've heard you speak eloquently about your patients with clients with borderline personality disorder, and it's helped me understand some of what my mom must be going through. But I'm wondering if you've ever worked with patients who have borderline parents, if there's a first step you recommend or a book or online research that you know of, I would appreciate that direction so much. Bob, what do you think? There's a book by a fellow called Alec Chapman. Um, it's called the Borderline Personality Disorder, Disorder Survival Guide. I know him, and I that book will be non non judgy. With the books about borderline personality disorder, you you got to be careful because some of them are written with an axe to grind or an edge to them or a judgy bit. So I know him, and I know that that book is not written that way. 
Um, your deep dive on attachment is probably a good um, resource. Um, you might consider hiring um, a good therapist as like a consultant for how to um, hold your limit if that's what's needed with your mom. Um, uh, hold limit. I, yeah, no, I'm going to change that. To observe your limit with your mom so that you're clear about what you will and won't do and um, get some support to actually do that. It's likely to have a stabilizing effect, though there's no guarantee about that. Um, and if if the situation is that your mom has, is not seeking any kind of help for her volatility, then you might have to, you're, you might be in whitewater sometimes. What do you mean? Um, you might, it, it's, it's likely to remain a difficult relationship. Right. Yeah. It's a tough situation yes. and there's really no good answer. There's no way to win. Yeah. You can't, you can't cure it. Yeah. Yeah. Especially it sounds like she's not going to therapy your mom. Yeah. Who's 75. And so you're asking like, okay, what do I do now that I'm kind of aware? And I think my mom has borderline. I think I have traits, you know, what do I do about my relationship with my mom? And, you know, it depends on a lot of things. Is she aware at all yeah. of her reactivity or right. not? Because if she's aware, then that's a beachhead into some conversations. But if she's not, and trying to make someone like that aware is a minefield because it's a catch-22. Because in order for them to become aware, they have to listen to other people's feedback but to listen to other people's feedback is extremely triggering to them in terms of abandonment. And so they get very hurt and very angry. Yeah. Um, the other question is, is she abusive to you? I mean, you're talking about boundaries, yeah. but if she's abusive to you and it sounds like there's a possibility, then you have every right to protect yourself. And Absolutely. there's, there's really no point in, in walking into the lion's den, no. <laughs> but, but I get it because as we all want a connection with our parents, particularly those that we never really had a good enough connection with, we're always returning to that well, finding it empty. And good image. Uh, it's a normal thing that we do. Yeah. And, and so, you know, there's that. Also, you know, do you have complex PTSD as a result of her that are being triggered by yeah. contacting her? Right, you know, right. you got to be very careful about what you're subjecting yourself to yeah. at, at the fantasy that things will be different, you know, Ooh, that's a great sentence because it's possible that it will never be different. Yeah. And now I'm not saying to give up on her, but no. I'm just saying it wouldn't be uncommon for someone in your position to be unrealistic about what's possible Yeah, and to be desperately hopeful without considering your own needs. Honestly, yeah. um, when I've run into this in practice, the main thing I do is I coach my clients to be very clear about what their limits are, how long a visit's going to be, where the person is allowed to stay, um, w what kind of rules are in place, and uh, what expectations are. Because if you communicate those clearly, um, especially if, if, if there's a grandchild involved, you hold the you hold all the power over whether or not grandparent gets to see grandkid and so um if you're clear about what you're what's healthy and wholesome for you and what ain't gonna work um they'll probably shape up to some degree yeah and i've never had that go wrong you know because 
the clients will say, well, if I do that, yeah, you know, there'll exactly. be all this fighting. And, oh, right. and I'm like, well, yeah, there'll be a, there'll be a reaction. Yep. But on the other side of this yes. is you get what you want. Yes. <laughs> and deserve. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. The other thing to think about is, you know, what are you hoping for as an outcome? Right. Are you hoping to end your mom's borderline, which isn't likely to happen? No. Are you looking for a better relationship with your mom? You know, that that's possible within reason. Yeah. Are you looking for closure of some kind? Are you looking for your mom to apologize? You know, it. I, I would really try to clarify yeah. what you're hoping for and, and make some realistic judgments about yeah. those, those outcomes that you're hoping for. Um, it'd be fine to have hopes, but it would be self-destructive to forge ahead thinking those hopes can be realized. Yeah. Um, what I recommend is one healing from the mistreatment that you experienced. So yeah. it sounds like you're in therapy, which is great, which, you know, might involve a lot of work and a lot of grieving also break, you know, breaking the cycle, you know, which sounds like what you're doing. You have your own daughter and you don't want to continue the cycle of, of parenting styles that result in, relational traumas you know your mom probably was relationally traumatized by her parents and and so on and now you have a daughter and you're just like i don't want to continue that cycle and it's you're and you're doing that work and and you're you're probably gonna succeed you know to some extent know that no parent uh, you know that all parents relationally traumatize their kids so that's just gonna happen <laughs> uh <laughs> It's not a matter of eliminating it. It's a matter of mitigating it as best you can. Um, Anonymous Patriot said, after listening to your podcast on borderline, I'm pretty sure my late mother suffered from borderline. Mm. I've been kicked out of my house for eating the last banana in the house. I've been bullied, abandoned by my mother, but also had a deep loving relationship with her when I set boundaries. Mm. I want to know as a child, what can I do to heal from my own childhood? Bob, what do you think? Well... You know, that sounds like um, personal therapy is probably a really good idea. Um, the potential for healing to take place in uh, um, in your if you're in a romantic relationship or uh, if you have a, a partner or whatever, there's that potential that that person isn't, you know, they're not your therapist per se, though. We're all each other's therapists to some degree. So whatever. Um, there's that. Um, there's thinking about. Uh, examining the kind of schemas that you walk through life with. Um, though Kirk could probably say more about schema therapy than I could. I I don't know. I can't, I can't think of anything else. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty general question and yeah. we talk about this answer in a lot of different ways. And so it's hard to say something specific to such a general thing, but the, thing you know just to reiterate what bob's saying is yeah going to therapy what you're looking for is earn security you're looking for essentially changing your schemas and changing your working models of self and others such yeah. that you believe that other people can be trusted and that you are uh, deserving of love and attention right on and that can only be learned through experience yeah. and when you have a parent who doesn't provide you with that then it skews your perceptions of others and the self such that defenses are employed much too readily to defend against perceived problems 
that might not be happening. For example, I don't know what your mom did if she did suffer from borderline. It's possible that she was often triggered by abandonment and would get real hurt and real angry. So, uh, you know, you're saying I was kicked out of my house for eating the last banana. And I don't know, but uh, often what that is a result of is, you know, you eat the last banana and your mom notices that it's gone. And anyone, if there was already a conversation like, you know, don't eat all the bananas or, you know, there's some kind of conversation about it. And your mom comes around the corner and sees you eating the last banana. And to someone who doesn't have those relational traumas, it kind of hurts their feelings. They're just like, oh, they're doing that thing again where they don't think about other people's feelings by eating the last banana. But to someone who doesn't have relational traumas, they'll just be like, well, but, you know, I can go to the store and this doesn't mean they they don't like me. It just means that they were hungry and they wanted the last banana. You know, there's a regulation internally that happens because the the pain isn't very large if there at all yeah but to someone with borderline because of the the wounds that they've experienced that moment will become so blown out of proportion in their heart it'll just feel like utter pain and and rejection and abandonment and disregard for them they get very hurt and then they get consequently which would make total sense given how hurt they are very angry. And then they, they yell at you and then you yell back and then they kick you out of the house. So you just had a banana, but to them, they had a whole series of complex traumas that were triggered in that moment. And as a result for you, rinse and repeat this, you emerged from childhood with schemas that maybe you don't matter. Maybe that other people can't be trusted. Maybe that you don't deserve to self-indulge or to get your needs met to have a banana (laughs) that other people are scrutinizing everything you're doing. Maybe some eating disorder issues, maybe some demoralization and depression, maybe some, I can't uh, be vulnerable to other people because, because they're going to hurt me. And then you retain those ideas and you have a bunch of defenses in all likelihood that prevent you from actually having your needs met by relationships. And so the the pillars of therapy are self-awareness. So you can actually act in a way that is in line with your needs and not regard your knee jerk reaction all the time and engage in defenses thereof. And then long-term is to change your working model of self and others such that you don't have that reactivity anymore. And you can have a banana metaphorically or, you know, in reality and not worry that someone's going to come around the corner and yell at you. This is a great answer. Let's take a break. We get back more great answers from Bob and me. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, deserving listeners. As y'all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time, 
Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to BetterHelp.com Kirk to get 10% off your first month today. All right, back from the break. Anonymous patron says, I have seen my therapist over the years. The long, I've seen many therapists over the years. The longest relationship I've had with one lasted about six months. Most others were only two to three sessions. I seem to run into this problem every time. Everything they say feels scripted. I just can't feel a connection when they give me the quote-unquote right answers. For example, rephrasing my words to make me feel heard or saying empathetic things like, that must have been difficult. I know those things are what you're trained to say. I just don't feel like it's genuine. How on earth do I get past this, Bob? Talk about it. Yeah. And you know what? Maybe in some ways it isn't genuine. Maybe it is a bit canned. Um, and it sounds like what you really crave is contact. And also what you fear is that you're not going to get it. <clears throat> I, I have a client who has said to me several times, I don't like it when you reflect like that. Don't tell me how I feel. And I don't experience myself as telling them how they feel. I, I'm doing actually my little dog and pony show, which is the training I have and what I've learned about how to reflect people's feelings. In those moments, are you, do you feel actually empathetic, like you're in the zone with them, or do you feel like you're just writing it in? Yeah, actually. Phoning it in. It's the second one. Yeah. And when they call me out, I don't feel confronted. I sort of feel like they're inviting me. They're actually making an invitation yeah. for me to have contact with them. And yeah, like that's awesome. I, I'm just trying to remember which person I see this is so I can just reflect on a little bit more accurately. I can't quite. Can't quite. Yeah. Uh, to piggyback on what Bob is saying, there are, uh, uh, you know, therapists are trained to do certain things and, and the, um, thing that I train my people to do is these are just the beginning sentence of a novel, essentially Yeah. The you know, to say this phrase, like that must be, that must've been really hard for you or to paraphrase what someone else says back to them as a quote unquote active listening skill is good but it's the it's the topic sentence of the first paragraph of the novel of what it is like to have a connection with your client. <laughs> and there are many other sentences just in that first paragraph, let alone in that entire novel. The ability to make someone feel, whether it's a client or a friend, heard and understood and seen and in contact with is a, um, I don't know what to say. It's, it's complicated. It <laughs> and requires- you can't teach it in a class. But but even developing it requires experience with somebody. I mean, two or three sessions ain't going to do it, even for someone who's very good at their job. Yeah. Uh, six months, I think that's great. I wonder why that one ended. My guess is it's quite scary to actually trust. Right. And maybe what happened is they were doing it a good job. Or maybe they made a mistake somewhere along the way. I mean, God knows we do. Right. So, yeah. so perhaps just t- sheer terror about... Um, you know, losing somebody, somebody abandoning or somebody betraying, you know, sheer terror about that would make it extraordinary. 
the more I think about this person that wrote in, the more I'm just impressed with them. Like they're reaching out. Mm -hmm. Like they keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Like that's awesome. Yeah. I don't know, anonymous patron, but based on your description, the fact that you've seen many therapists over the years and most of the therapists you've only seen for two or three sessions, I suspect that what is happening is you're coming into the sessions with a chip on your shoulder about having been mistreated well before you even went to therapy, which is why you're there in therapy. And you're looking for someone to be uncomplicatedly interested in you and open and loving. You're looking for someone to care, which of course is good. But given the chip on your shoulder, you're, you're coming into the session and I've experienced this from clients, you know, they'll, they'll come in and they'll, they'll make it really hard for me to actually connect with them. They're, they're already kind of suspicious of me and they're pushing me away from the beginning. And it's really hard to connect with someone like that. And I have to, you know, what I want to say is stop, but I don't know them well enough to, to be able to, you know, have that, to threaten that uh, relationship in that way. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I might in those moments have to resort to these kinds of um, rote statements like that must have been really hard for you. You know, I because I'm in a state where my hands are kind of tied as a therapist in a certain way, because I, I if if you let me in, I, I'm a I'm I'm a safe place or if you come in, I'm a safe place. The door is open. F- feel free to come in. But if you don't come in. I'm screaming through the wall <laughs> and there's only so much I can do to make you feel safe when you're, when you don't come inside the house, you know, you're outside in the hurricane. I can only, I can only scream through the wall. And I'm also terrified that, that you're gonna hate me, you know, cause I'm a human being too. And I get this impression, like you think I'm dangerous or, and so I, I it's a lot to deal with as a therapist yeah. and it's hard. And so it's possible that you're getting a weird reaction from, you know, a variety of therapists because of the, of the way that of your suspicion coming in, which isn't your fault. I mean, it's probably from your childhood, but, but as Bob says, talk about it, you know, because it's easy to say and scary to do. Right. Yeah. Or at the very least, you know, give it some time, uh, Mm -hmm. in the, in the first few sessions, it's possible that an excellent therapist will be kind of phoning it in a little bit because they just don't know you that well enough yet or or they don't there's just not a repertoire of of language the The other thing I will say is I think Bob was saying is that some therapists just aren't very good <laughs> you know they've been trained bad or they just don't know how to connect or they're not that sort of therapist you know if you're a CBT therapist right. yeah. You're not really there to connect, connect. necessarily. Right. You're there to work on a skill. And so uh, you might be running into that. But mm-hmm. uh, the ability, and I, because I train a lot of people, and the ability to really make someone feel heard is something that is a talent, like the ability to sing or something. And you can train someone to sing. You can train someone to do it well enough. But, it, but there are some people where, you know, Whitney Houston where they just open their mouth and it just happens. And there's therapists that are like that too, where they just sit in front of someone and their vibe is so inviting and so warm and so welcoming and, and eliciting really that it it just is what it is. It doesn't mean that if you don't have that, you can't be an effective therapist. You kind of have to 
I don't know, hone different skills. And I, I think it can be learned. I, I think charisma can't, you know, can be accessed maybe is a better word for it in, in all therapists, but it is a, it is a charisma element of how do I make someone who's very reticent and hesitant and has a chip on their shoulder? How do I make them feel seen? You know, um, it's a, they don't teach this, you know, they, there's no, there's no chapter in a book in graduate school that teaches you how to, how to reach someone, how to make them feel, um, heard and understood when they're coming in already feeling like you're, you're going to fail at it. You know, how do you overcome that? You know, like I'm just thinking of my own, uh, it's been a while since I've had a, even a new client. So, uh, it's hard for me to remember, but I could imagine myself with someone say session two or say, I might say, so I'm getting the impression like you're holding back with me, which is fine. If that's what you want to do, it's your hour. But I invite you to to don't because, you know, you might find that uh, this is a much richer, more satisfying experience if you just kind of relax and and say whatever's on your mind, even if you think I'm not going to approve of it. So how do I say that in a way that's not attacking someone? How do I how do I respond to their response and how do they respond to my response and how do I respond to their response from my response from their response? Um how do I do that in a way that pushes things forward? Um, you know, that takes experience and charisma, I think. You know, early in my career, I, I, I remember I had all these little post-it notes that I would write little things down on. To, to I would discover things about therapy that I was never taught, and I would write it on a post-it note, and I'd put it on my office wall and I'm sure 90% of them were ridiculous, like little dumb. And I think sometimes I would look at them. I'd be like, I don't even know what that one means. But I remember one of them was being a good therapist is being a good diplomat, being good at diplomacy, being good at knowing how to lead someone into something as and being convincing about it, being persuasive, maybe is another word. Being a good therapist is the ability to persuade, you know, because you 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 have to be able to say someone comes into your office and they think that people can't be trusted and they think that in order to be safe they have to be closed up well how do you persuade someone to believe that it's safe how do you help them to really believe that totally against every fiber in their body that i as a therapist am safe you can say anything to me you could yell at me you could criticize me i'm i'm safe how do you persuade someone to believe that you know, that's, that's, that's a skill, like a salesman in a sense, but it's a, it's a, it's an altruistic persuasion sales effort of trying to sell an idea to someone, you know, you're trying to really, and, and you can't just say, look, I'm safe. You, you got to come at it from several angles. You've got to convince you've, you've got to demonstrate, you've got to use your charisma to inspire, you know, it's it, it, a good therapist inspires a client to to go to places that are really scary for them you know they're they're inspirational in that way and and uh it's possible anonymous patron that you just haven't met the right one you just got a lot of duds over the years which you know can happen i suppose but but like bob says if you can just talk about it just be like like bob's client just like so when you just said when you just paraphrase what I just said, I feel like you're not really listening to me. I feel like you're just 
saying that because your training is telling you to say that is, is that true? Don't tell me how I feel. <laughs> right. That's what, that's what that person says. Right. But what your client probably really meant was I'm not feeling like you're putting effort into knowing my experience. I feel like you're just, you're just, you know, passively saying something that you're supposed to say as a therapist. You're not really trying to contact me. Don't you think that's what your client was saying? Yes. And to my response is because you and I have enough history, I can say to you that I wonder if you never feel safe. And if you often feel as though you've got to be on the lookout, including from me, is that possible? And now we're talking. And by the way, I have done that with that particular client and it's been very helpful. Um, I think we're at the beginnings of that being helpful um, because I think that person automatically slides into that kind of defensive self-protection. And, you know, so be it, whatever, what are you going to do? They are where they are. So we get to keep at it. When I said that the first time, I um, believe two things happened. One is they felt seen, genuinely seen. And two is we built a little bit of a bridge with one another. Yeah. And to you therapists listening out there, I, if you're thinking, well, what do I do? How do I become that persuasive, charismatic helper? Uh, one thing to think about is be genuine. Yeah. Be real. Yep. If you, if you often, not always, if you go there in your head, that's the path to persuasive inspiration. And, and it generates your own power. You know, when you're trying to act like a good therapist, (laughs) then you're not in contact with your soul. Uh And if you are genuine and authentic, you are in connection with your humanity, which will naturally, um, be so powerful. The client will feel it and will be inspired. Half a half a dozen times during the week, I say to my client, Jesus, I sound like a damn therapist. Can I try again? Yeah. Yeah. Right. How do you know that? Like, and as, get you're, as, as it's occurring, how are you like, uh-oh, how do you know you're acting like a therapist? I can feel my heart rate change. It goes up. Oh. I get wordy and I talk about things from a cognitive standpoint mm. and I don't, it's not so that my language isn't simple or direct or immediate. Mm. That's how I know. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I imagine that's true for a lot of people. Yeah. Anonymous patron, she says, can I go back to a therapist who previously referred me elsewhere? Two years ago, I was seeing a therapist that I really felt connected with. It was a bad period in my life, and we spent a great deal of time discussing my self-harm and suicidal thoughts. But a day came when my thoughts turned into plans, and my therapist made the decision to send me to the hospital. Hmm. When discussing his decision with my husband, he made a comment that I was not cooperating with his therapy. We had one last appointment after my hospital stay where he then recommended that I see a different therapist. It's been two years and I've literally tried around 10 different therapists without ever feeling that strong connection. And I desperately miss my conversations with that therapist. Uh Is there any chance I could go back to my old therapist at this point? How would you as a therapist handle, handle this situation like this? Bob, what do you think? Yeah. Well, you could at least try. I mean, you can't lose, uh, can't, uh, nothing to lose. Um, and you have, maybe you'll read this email to them so that you guys have a context from which to start. Cause you're saying something really cool. You're saying, I valued this. And also you scared me or you hurt me. 
or you know whatever and or i think maybe you were judging me and you know there's pro there's like enough good here that i want to kick the tires on you <laughs> yeah what do you what, what what's your conception of what happened mm-hmm. between us yeah yeah absolutely or keep looking or sometimes keep looking. it takes a while to find a good connection and or continue to grieve that loss it's you know as we've been saying with other situations it yeah. can be hard to to lose that that yeah. that relationship yes but just generally speaking what maybe this is more of a conversation between us and the therapist listening right now um i don't know the situation that happened to you anonymous patron but i've seen this happen a lot where a a, a supervisee of mine or someone will be talking about a client who is struggling and suicidal and it becomes real scary to the therapist. They don't know what to do. And they'll come up with excuses to terminate. And I don't know if that's the situation that happened to you at Honest Patreon. I, there's really no way to tell. But I'll hear phrases like this, like, well, they're not really cooperating in therapy. And I'm like, and, and I always say this, of like, you realize people come to therapy because they have problems, right? <laughs> like, yeah. they don't come to therapy without any problems. <laughs> so the fact that... Their problem, the fact that they have problems Uh and their problems interfere with therapy shouldn't surprise you. You know, it's sort of be like uh, an auto mechanic, you know, you call them up and you're like, hey, my car broke down on the side of the road. And and the auto mechanic's like, well, get the car in. And they're like, and say there's no tow trucks in this universe. And the customer is like, well, I can't get my car to you because it's on the side of the road. And the auto mechanic's is like, well, how am I supposed to help you then? You know, like they blame the person sitting on the side of the road. It's like, that's the reason why I need you because my car isn't working, you know? Um, so uh, when a client comes in and they have, shall we say, stubborn um, uh, or, you know, inflexible or ongoing treatment-resistant depression and suicidal thoughts, then it's just like, well, that that's their problem, pal. Stick with it. You know, what do you think another therapist is going to be able to do? Now, maybe in this situation, there was a legitimate concern, like the client literally wasn't compliant with treatment for some reason and was making it very difficult for the therapist to do their job, which you could justify termination in that situation. Or the therapist just doesn't want to deal with people who have that level of suicidality, which is fine, but you have to screen people out so that you don't actually end up in a relationship with them and then suddenly terminate with them. That that drives me bonkers that people just like, yeah, I don't work with people like that. Okay. How about telling them up front (laughs) and, and, and they're like, well, how am I supposed to know? Well, you can't. So you got to actually screen a lot of people out who, who you predict might actually end up there. Of course, asking about somebody's history is probably the best predictor of the future there is. So if they have a history of um, suicidal ideation, thinking about killing themselves, or they do non-lethal self-harm, finding that out ahead of time and letting them know. What I always say to people is, I, I am not as available as I believe you deserve and need, and I cannot provide the level of care that I think you deserve and need, which is probably going to take place beyond just the, say, we meet for an hour a week. Right. Your needs are going to be beyond that, and you deserve to get them met, and I, I'm not, it's beyond my limit to provide that, so I'm not your guy. Right. Not, what's wrong with you? Oh, no, I don't treat people like you. Or 
let's engage for two years and then I'm going to fire you as a client uh, because you exhibit a problem, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, patron Lena from Seattle says, are you mm. familiar with dialectical therapy? I was recently diagnosed with borderline and have been curious about dialectical therapy and what it entails. It has been told, I have been told that it was actually founded in Seattle and was wondering if you would be able to talk about it, Bob. Yeah, I could talk about that. Yeah. Uh, I got trained at the mothership in DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. Um, yes, it was developed here in Seattle. Um, and uh, it has two parts. That, let me start over. Standard DBT therapy has two parts. It has individual therapy and it has this thing called skills training, which often takes place in a group or a class. That's the thing I do. I teach a DBT skills class. Standard DBT usually involves the skills trainer and the therapist or therapists meeting regularly to, as Marsha likes to put, Marsha Linehan, that's the treatment developer, puts it as therapy for the therapist. They don't really meet to talk about clients. They meet to support themselves. And the way she views it is we are a community of therapists treating a community of clients. So a community of therapists treating a community of clients, they meet regularly and they stay on page with one another and they support one another in their efforts. That's the standard DBT model. What's the major goal outcome-wise for DBT? The major goal is to keep people from killing themselves to improve their quality of life. Uh, those are two different goals. Through emotional regulation mainly. Yeah, emotional regulation is a big part of it. Also, there's a component of interpersonal, uh, they call it interpersonal effectiveness, which is really assertiveness training. And then what to do about... Um, Crises, should they occur, how to survive them without making life worse, and how to accept the things that we can't change. And uh, so how long does it last usually? The research model is that people go to therapy for a year and they engage in both components. That's not how it's always practiced. And here in Seattle, they have different models, variations on that. Uh, would you say this is true that as a, you know, a, common uh, course for someone is that they get labeled with borderline they get referred to dbt the first year of their dbt treatment helps them to uh you know significantly reduce their suicidal thoughts yeah. to improve their emotions a little bit so that they're not in distress as often Correct. but that's just step number one and then a much longer longer-term therapy of corrective experiences and further self-awareness that it you know, might take 10, 15 years, 20 years is what is also necessary. Yeah, they call that stage two. You, you describe stage one, which is um, really getting... Crises down. Crises down, getting suicide and self-harm off the table. Yeah. Right. And uh, then long-term therapy is necessary to really correct the schemas so that you feel lovable and that you can trust other people. There is very little data on stage two DBT, stage one DBT, lots of data. That's that stuff about re reducing crises. Um, and stage two DBT, which is about um, healing from uh, there's, there's less data on that though. There's a psychologist called Melanie Harned, who I believe works at the Seattle VA, who I believe has made a fundamental improvement in DBT. What she's found a way to do is to add prolonged exposure for trauma 
mm. into the first year DBT. So stage one DBT with this PE, which is really a stage two kind of thing. The way she does it is she says to her people, we don't have a better treatment than PE for trauma. And you can't, this is, this is the only thing I know that's going to help you. And if you are doing self-harm, if you're involved, if you're having these kind of crises, then you can't do PE because it could be destabilizing. And the last thing we want to do is make your life worse or kill you. Right. So you got to get it off the table for some length of time and then we can do PE. And that's the only way I know to help to heal you. Yeah. When she did a, she did a pilot study and then a small um, clinical trial. And I was the skills trainer on the pilot study. And those people were amazing. The clients, the subjects in that study were amazing. Nine out of 12 engaged in PE, got suicide and self-harm off the table so that they could engage in PE. And by the end of the year, they were noticeably different than any other skills class I've ever taught in 21 years in, in the following way. They were less afraid. Like I remember one person saying that they no longer crossed the street whenever they saw a man. So what they did, they, they lived a life that was exposed. Because most, most men, most people that you bump into on the street are not dangerous. And what they would do is if they'd see somebody coming at them, they'd cross the street so they could avoid them and stay safe. And what they decided to do was not live that way anymore. And so they went through their own real-life exposure to um, proximity of men, like standing at a bus stop, say. Um, and as a result, became less afraid. Of the 12 subjects that enrolled, nine finished. They all did a year. And among those nine, I noticed that there was a, a beautiful level of equanimity. They were far less afraid, and they were all really, really angry and really, really sad mm. about the shit that they went through. They were, they were lovely, lovely. Um, and at the same time, I think they were kind of ordinary. Like, like they were willing. That's awesome. Uh, they were, um, but I don't think that there was anything unique about that particular group that wouldn't be present in another group. I think, though, that their experience of doing PE in that first year, I believe uh, Melanie Harned improved the treatment in a really visceral way. Yeah. Uh, by the way, my neighbors have decided to start up um, a jet engine or something, or <laughs> uh, it almost sounds like they're shredding trees yeah, in yeah. one of those kind of yeah. industrial shredders or something. Yeah, yeah. And as a audio uh, um, meticulous person, it's driving me bananas to, cause there's nothing I can do. Yeah. So it's just going to bleed into the microphone. So if you're hearing this, you know, that's what it is. I'm guessing it's not as loud to y'all out there than it is to me, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, so if you didn't catch it, PE is prolonged exposure yeah. and it's interesting to hear that, hear you speak in detail about it, because I came to those realizations through treating people with borderline yeah. and, and associated personality issues. And it, it took me a long time to get there. Mm -hmm. um, and I essentially do a version and have, and yeah. I know you do too, essentially, of what they're talking about of, you know, there's elements of DBT that I naturally came to and yeah. DBT doesn't, you know, it didn't invent emotional regulation. It, it just kind not. of packages it and didn't yes. invent mindfulness, it you know, not. but, uh, 
there's that and then and then the prolonged exposure part is a particular protocol but i i use a more um just a different sort of more flexible version i don't use the protocol of of exposure i use the principles principles of, of exposure yeah. through me mainly yeah. you know to to be exposed to yeah. their relationship with me yes is terrifying yeah and a lot of questions pop up yep. uh you know it's like if you're afraid of heights the mm-hmm. closer you get to the edge of the cliff questions start to emerge in your body which is am i going to die yeah. am i going to is a gust of wind going to push me off and i'm, right. I'm going to die right and your body reacts and then you're like no 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 get me mm-hmm. away from i never want to do that again yeah well when you've been traumatized by relationships then the closer you get to anyone, these questions pop up and you have emotional reactivity that obviously is distressing, but also interferes with your ability to have close relationships, which you need. You don't need to get, you know, next to a cliff. You do need to get close to human beings. But uh, if they can interface with me and an hour every week um, get close to me, not just talk to me, not just download to me, but actually get close to me, worry about my approval, worry about my rejection, wonder what's going on in my mind, have questions as to if I actually care and ask, do you actually care? To really interact is to be exposed to the terror of the possibilities of rejection and abuse. And by not being rejected or abused through that experience with me, it, and prolonging that exposure for an hour every week uh, habituates their body to the uh, to relationships such that when they get close to people other than me, they are no longer terrified, um, or they're terrified in the normal way, you know, <laughs> that everyone is afraid, but but they're not panicking, yeah. you know, and they're not hyper vigilant, and they're not assuming every sign is a sign. It, I guess to stretch the analogy, if you are afraid of heights and you're getting close to, you know, say you're 50 yards from the edge and you feel a little gust of wind, there's this assumption like, I'm going over the edge. You know, this is that's it. I'm dying. This is going to happen. Or the closer you get to an edge, you're like, well, what if this, the you know, the ground crumbles and we all go over the edge and you feel a slight, you know, thing that you could interpret. So there's this assuredness that any sign means you're going over the edge. Well, mm-hmm. in a, when you've been relationally traumatized and you have, Oh, that next door neighbor is driving me. Um, the assumption is, Oh, they're not really listening to me right now. Or, Oh, they're ending the session on time. <laughs> um, that must mean that they hate me and they're going to reject me and they're going to hurt me and they're, they're going to abandon me and it's going to feel really bad. And you just have to have those questions answered in the positive enough times for the body to be, okay, I don't need to, I don't need to be hypervigilant. I don't need to be on edge all the time. I don't need to assume. In fact, life has shown me that at least this person, when they say they actually like me, they actually do like me. And when they disapprove of me, it doesn't mean the end of the world. It just means that they just have a complaint about me. It's, it doesn't mean they're going to abandon me. And so along with emotional regulation, suicidal thought management, 
building better relationships and exposure. It's just gratifying to hear that the protocols are aligning with what I found to be true when I started treating people. Yeah. Oh, so uh, that person, if they want information about DBT, just give me a call. How oh. do they find you? Oh, on the web, bobgettle.com. Okay. okay. Uh, one more, Bob. Sure. Anonymous patron. She says, hey, Kirk and Bob, I was listening to an episode where you mentioned therapists that don't understand dependency and it reminded me that every therapist I've had tried to give me advice and has gotten frustrated with me and it makes me sort of hate them. I've been diagnosed with borderline, but had pushback when I said I felt more dependent than borderline. And I didn't feel like they were interested in hearing my conceptualization of myself as if I was stepping on their toes and insulting them because they had diagnosed me with borderline. It's frustrating that no therapist I've had seems to understand dependent personality. Would you recommend I try to dig in and make them get it? It's what I'm there for, right? Any opinions are appreciated. What do you think, Bob? Well, I think what you have is uh, like a tug of war in your therapy relationship that's worthy of talking about. Something's happening here where you guys are polarizing. So um, I think the polarizing is um, has the benefit of becoming a, a resource uh, of a corrective experience, um, lemonade out of the lemon. Even if you guys don't see eye to eye on the diagnosis, like what's there's something meaningful about that perhaps for both of you clearly for you, perhaps for the therapist as well, and learning about what that is, even if you don't agree about what the actual, according to Hoyle, diagnosis is, might be more useful than reaching a consensus about where do I fit in the DSM. Yeah, totally. I'll also say that anecdotally, most therapists don't know what dependent personality disorder is. I would say a good chunk don't even know it's a thing (laughs) because their awareness of the personality disorders is narcissistic and borderline and maybe antisocial. And that's pretty much all that they can, you know, you just quiz a random therapist, tell me all the personality disorders that you know of. I'm just going to take a guess and say that the average number that they can identify is, you know, three or four out of the, out of the nine. And and there's more than the nine because the DSM isn't the arbiter of what a personality disorder is. You know, we have psychopathic, we have sadistic, we have passive aggressive. Anyway, point is, is that it doesn't surprise me that someone doesn't understand that and might feel insulted when you're questioning, you know, it's normal. It's not good. But when a client says, um, I don't agree with your conceptualization of me, or I don't agree with your diagnosis of me, um, a competent therapist will one say, fine, you know, it's totally okay for us to disagree, one. Two, I don't know everything as a therapist because I'm only one human being, and it's, you know, I, I might not know everything. You might actually know more than I do as a as a th- client of mine. You might know more about a personality disorder than I do. Um, three, they'll enter into a conversation around like, well, okay, you know yourself better than I do know you, so, you know, tell me, what what do you think? But when you're incompetent or you're insecure, then you'll get defensive and you'll say, hey, and you'll you'll play a power play of I'm the therapist, you're the client, I know better. And yeah. it's a shortcut to to less 
in into less insecurity, you know. And oh, that's a good sentence too. And it's you know it'll happen. So I don't know if that's what's happening with your therapist, anonymous patron. There's no way for us to know, but you know I I can see that happening. Uh, and therapists can absolutely get attached to their own conceptualizations. I, I'm one of those people. You know, it's it's a cognitive bias that once I humans we establish an idea narrative, it's it takes a lot of cognitive effort to dislodge that narrative and create a new one, and it creates a lot of work for the person. And you know, you know, we all understand echo chambers and politics and this sort of thing. You know, to tell someone look your idea about QAnon isn't correct. You know, <laughs> it takes a lot of brain power to, you've got to change a lot of things about your, who you are. And anyway, and so you have to want to, yeah. Um, and yeah, the other, on the other hand, you know, there could be a counter transference, transference things happening between you and your therapist, especially if you have borderline and or dependent personality in that, um, you know, with borderline, you're l- likely the trauma is abandonment and, re- and rejection. And so the, uh, uh, the transference there is my therapist really isn't on my side and they're going to reject me. And so there's a possibility that when you're socializing your therapist to reject you by fighting with them, you know, about a diagnosis. I mean, we don't know, but there could be a vibe you're giving off to the therapist that could be hurting them or challenging them in some way that makes it uh, so that you have a dynamic where the therapist is um, sort of clamming up or putting up walls or even flat out just rejecting what you're saying because of your traumas are entering the room, if that makes any sense. And that happens. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens to be the conversation is about this, this diagnosis label also with dependent personality, there's often a resentment of dependency. You know, the person with dependent, they're, they're both extremely dependent on others, but also very angry and resentful about being dependent on others. And therapy challenges that because it, it's inherently dependency um, oriented and that the client is dependent on the therapist for help, for security, for guidance or, um, what's the source of anger? The dependent person. Yeah. Well, one often dependent people, it's not always the case, but they often due to the enmeshment with one of their parents, wasn't allowed to be angry. And so they have a lot of pent up anger that has never been expressed. And, they're basically walking around with a giant ball of anger inside of them <laughs> that is occasionally sneaking out in hidden ways or displaced onto other people like their therapists. Um, also, there's a natural anger to dependency when you know when you're being enmeshed with and controlled by a high anxious or high contr- and or high controlling parent. You just. Uh, you're pushed into this dependent childish point, you know, place and you want to be, you want autonomy, you want independence. And so when you are again, as an adult in a natural dependent state, like therapy, which is healthy, you displace all this control anger of just like, you know, how dare you put me in this position where I depend on you kind of a thing. 
And, but it's complicated by the fact that the dependent person is often completely unaware of their anger, but the anger is there, you know, but they deny it because they had to, to cope with the enmeshment with when they were young, you know? And so this isn't all people with dependent, dependent personality actually encompasses quite a few different types that Mm -hmm. I've talked about in my deep dive. But anyway, so you can be quite resentful toward your therapist and that could manifest in this, this topic of fighting about what diagnosis it is when in reality there's some dynamic going on around either borderline abandonment and rejection or dependent anger, resentment around dependency. And so, uh, you know, I don't know, but, um, I would be surprised if anonymous patron, your schemas weren't playing at least some role Mm -hmm. in this conflict that you have with your therapist. And so again, as Bob always says, talk about it, yeah, bring it up. I don't like what you have to think about. I don't like what you have to say about my diagnosis. And frankly, I don't, I feel like you don't know what you're talking about. And I feel like you're jumping to conclusions. I feel like you don't want to, I feel like I understand dependent personality better than you do. You know, just say it. And a good therapist can absolutely hang with that kind of conversation and can absolutely um, manage. <laughs> you know, someone said that to me in my better moments. I would like to think I'd just be like, good, let's talk about it. Maybe you're right. Maybe I don't know. Um, tell me what I don't know. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Or, you know what, when you say it, my heart rate goes up. Yeah. Right. And I feel like I feel insecure as the therapist. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Could go fruit in both trees. Yeah. Like yeah. I've let you down or maybe I need to learn more or, you know, there's gaps in my knowledge base and yeah. maybe I don't know everything. And, um, or when you say that, it, I feel like you're being hurtful. I feel like you're trying to hurt my feelings instead of just tell me that I'm, I'm wrong. You know, you can tell me I'm wrong, but I feel like you're, like you're trying to make me feel bad about myself, you know, whatever it is, you know, just get wow. into it. You know, you imagine you're having a rich moment. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. And that's, you know, obviously right in line with both recovery from borderline or dependency, assertiveness, testing what a th- relationship can handle. Right. Um, having a felt, having survived the crisis. Yeah. Survived the yeah. conflict. Right, right, right. Cool. All right. Well, Good that luck. does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself and tell your therapist about these things because you deserve it.